Hear the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. I don't know if you heard this story, but in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, rescuers found a dog. Did you hear about this? There was this dog that they found that had been swimming for days. And they pull it out of the water. And when they pull this little dog out of the water, she had swum, I mean, hours upon hours to the brink of exhaustion. And when they finally pull her out of the water, her legs just kept kicking in the air. <laughs> I know this is her really dark. Gabe, you're supposed to make us smile when we know. Uh, so she's st- kick, kicking in the air, and it took hours, hours, because she had worked so hard. I mean, she'd pushed herself so far that it took hours finally with the rescuers calming her down for her legs to slowly calm down. I mean, she just couldn't stop. And when I think about my day off that rolls around each day of the week, sometimes I can relate, <laughs> you know, and, and I need the soothing words of Allie, which she is so great at. She's like, hey, it's your day off. You can relax, you know, but inside I still feel like I'm doing this. It's really hard to stop, isn't it? I mean, because life, I think, life can sometimes feel like you're drowning and you're just treading water to get by. You know, especially when you come to think about your work world. I don't know if you've seen this, but the New York Times, the Atlantic, and a lot of reputable articles have highlighted just this new dynamic in work um, that they're calling workism. And the way the Atlantic, in an article titled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable, (laughs) this is how they define workism. Workism is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. Now the outcome of that is what? We're working longer hours when we thought we would be working less. And the expectations placed upon employees, employers, organizations have risen to mass scales. But on top of all that, so there's your work world. On top of all that, it feels like relationships need constant care and attention. I mean, you've got work relationships. That's one part of it. But you've got childhood and college friendships now. Even though you've moved away and you've moved on, but you're connected via social media or a text. And then you've got your neighbors whether you live in a loft unit or you live in a, you know, a, a single-family home or a duplex, you've got your neighbors, you've got family maybe who live in different states, you've got your friends outside of work, you maybe have a spouse, if you have children, there's parenting, and there's more information around parenting than ever with higher expectations than ever. So all of these relationships, and then the anxiety and the pressure keeps rising because technology continues to expand. You don't only work at work. You work at home because you can. You work in a coffee shop because you can. Anywhere you can work, you do work. 
And then your relationships are so interwoven to every nook and cranny of your life, you feel like you could text a friend at 3 a.m. and they'll answer because their cell phone's right next to their face. Or you can scroll through Instagram at any hour of the day and feel worthless because of what people have accomplished before you got up, right? It's, it can feel so chaotic. And we can tell ourselves, at least I can, I'll just tread water till the weekend. Tread water to that long-anticipated vacation or maybe the holy grail of them all, retirement, right? <laughs> but there's one, there's a really, really significant problem with that strategy. And here it is. Rest will not emerge naturally. It doesn't just pop up. Now, chaos, chaos is really good at emerging naturally. It comes up without any work, any sort of effort, and then suddenly it's there. But rest, and if you know, if you've ever looked hard for rest, if you've ever pursued it, then you know rest doesn't just naturally emerge. Rather, rest must be created. Rest has to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured, ordered. And then, of course, the natural question pops up, how? <laughs> how is it nurtured? How is it created? And to what end? That's where we find ourselves this morning. Now, if you're new, we are walking through the book of Genesis, a book that reveals the beginning of everything that indeed does have a beginning. And this morning, we see for the first time rest emerging in our world. After six days of brilliant work, God rests. And it has significant implications, significant implications on your life and mine. So if you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 2, beginning here in verse 1. Now when you come to verse 1, something that's really important to note is that verse 1 of chapter 2 is intimately interconnected with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. These are bookends of a section. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. These bookends that are encapsulating this brilliant work of God over six days, He has been brilliantly putting the pieces together, bringing together a world that's flourishing that at the end He says is very good. That's the backdrop. And now we enter into verses 2 and 3. Look with me. Chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There's our word rest. It shows up twice in these two verses. And what's really important that we can so easily miss is that many scholars highlight that when the word rest is seen in a text or heard from an ancient Near Eastern mind, when it came to the gods resting, the image that instantly popped into the ancient Near Eastern mind was a temple. A temple. Rest conjured up temple imagery in an ancient Near Eastern mind. Now, John Walton, in his brilliant book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, 
he highlights this. He says, the piece of information that everyone knew in the ancient world and to which most modern readers are totally oblivious is that deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. This is what temples were built for. We might even say that this is what a temple is, a place for rest. So right here, when the ancient Near Eastern is is hearing this text being read or being spoken, they're thinking temple. Now what's also really interesting about this word rest, our English word rest, which is actually a translation of the Hebrew word Shabbat, it means ceasing. It's where we get our English word as well, Sabbath. And I want to be clear about what this ceasing means. The ceasing is not a disengagement of life or responsibility. Instead, this ceasing is like the stability after a storm. It's the resolution after tension. It's kind of like if you love cars and you built a Mustang from the ground up, you're sitting there in your garage and you're hearing the engine purr. Or maybe, just maybe, another illustration would be that foster child who's gone from home to home to home, and then finally the judge says he's been adopted and goes now to his new forever family with stability, wholeness, and embrace. The sense of rest. It's not a, a sense of absence, but a sense of presence and fullness. And so you have this beautiful temple imagery with this brilliant picture of stability, of wholeness, of things as they ought to be. And so you have this picture of God over six days creating this magnificent temple and he's dwelling there in all of the stability, in all the wholeness. And where is this temple? It's not set off in some certain part of town excluded from others. It's not excluded from the everyday. The temple is the world that he's created, the world he's placed us in. Which this is, this is huge, folks, because nowhere else in the ancient Near Eastern world do we have a picture of God in the very beginning where in the very beginning, God rests here with us. He works diligently to create a temple and he dwells in his temple where we are, where he's placed us Now, if you look across the biblical writers, they'll talk about God inhabiting the whole cosmos, the universe, right? He's so much bigger than what we can begin to fathom. And yet his temple has its foundation right here in the dust of the earth. And his invitation is to his image bearers. Those that he has made who are like him, who are to reflect him. Now in this temple world with him to rest and to work with him and now delight in the fullness of his good world with him. And a lot has changed about his world since the beginning due to our vandalism. But one thing remains constant. There's something pretty significant in these two verses, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, that's absent. There's something that's absent. Now, one thing that's really good when you're reading your Bibles is to not only look for what's there, but to look for what's not there. And there's a lot that's not there. So how do you navigate that, right? Well, we've been almost trained. If you read through Genesis chapter 1, all of Genesis 1 into 2, verse 3, you're trained to expect something in the text. 
The first six days, what do we see? There's this pattern. We heard it a couple weeks ago. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. When you get to the seventh day, there's no evening. There's no darkness. There's no end. This is significant. When you're hearing this red, you're going, wait, 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 where, where's the evening? It's because there is no end to the invitation that God is extending to his creation to come and rest with him. This is the rest he's been offering from the very beginning, the rest that has only been made more beautiful in the presence of his son, Jesus Christ, empowered now by the Spirit. This is a rest in him, founded by him, and it takes shape from his good design in the rhythms of our week of six days of work and one day of rest. And when we embrace him and the rest that he offers and his design, he points us to a rest-filled life. And this is so important, a rest-filled life where your rest is a life-giving word to a restless world looking on. Your rest is a life-giving word to a world that's treading in the midst of so much busyness and overwhelming decay. How so? I want to give you quick three reasons how your rest, when we actually embrace the rest that, God's, that God offers and the rest that he actually has designed within the framework of a week, when we embrace it, how your rest is a life-giving word. First, now, when we, we at Christ Community, we love work, don't we? We talk about it, the important integration of faith and work. And there's something really beautiful that we portray about our God in our work. Simultaneously, there's something extraordinarily important we portray about our God in our rest. Your rest is a life-giving word, and that your rest tells a better word about who God is. When you rest... You communicate to those looking on that our God longs for our delight, longs for our delight. We find ourselves in his temple, not his endless factory. And there's something really significant there. And now, now think about this. Moses, right, he's receiving this revelation, this revealing of God's truth at a particular point in time. And he's receiving it when the Israelites have 400 years of slavery under Egypt. And they're now on the cusp of freedom, seeking to understand, okay, who is this God? Now, while they were in Egypt, most scholars believe that the significant, the supreme God in Egypt was the God Ra, the sun God, such that when he rose, so did you and you worked. When they were in Egypt, there wasn't six days of work and one day of rest. That wasn't a framework around at that point. Scholars highlight that there's nothing like this particular structure of the week throughout the world in the ancient Near Eastern context. So imagine every morning you wake up, rise up, you're up, you work. You work, you work, you work, you work, you work, you work. You work. You, that's your life under Ra. And now you experience liberation from slavery. 
And you're reminded of the true creator, the God of Israel. And when he says, you're made in my image. And as the God in whom you're made in my image, I work and I rest. And I not only am sovereign enough to hold the world that I've created together while you rest, I encourage you as my image bearer to rest. We have a picture of a God who longs for our delight. What an astounding picture that is from the very beginning of creation. Like I said, there's no other framework for this weak structure, the six days of work and one day of rest throughout the ancient Near East, and yet it became the Hebrew framework for the seven-day week. Have you ever wondered where our seven-day week came from? It has its anchor points right here. We still experience some of the cultural hangover of God's design revealed in Scripture here. Because it's a good design, a design for human flourishing, a design that promotes rest as creatures of six days of work and one day of rest. So your rest, it, it's a life-giving word in that it tells a better word of who God is, but your rest also tells a better word of who we are, of who we are. How often do we define ourselves, at least I do this, by the product of my hands or how good a sermon lands, you know? <laughs> how great a blog sounds, or, or maybe for you, what comes off the product line, or how much of the market share you've accumulated, or sometimes even the inhumane levels of work that we justify based upon humanitarian aid. Listen, 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 listen. You aren't slaves. You aren't beasts of burden. You're children of God made in the image of a God who works and rests, and he invites us into this beautiful dynamic. And think about Moses again. He's, he's hearing this revelation from God to a people who for generations were treated exclusively as human chattel, as slaves, standing once again on the edge of the promised land, trying to figure out what does human liberation look like, well, it looks like, yes, really good hard work for six days, but freedom, liberation also looks like resting one day out of seven, taking a break, hitting a pause. We were designed for more than just work. Yes, good work, but also rest, where one day out of seven, we cease, we Sabbath, and we delight in God's good world and we delight in Him. This is what it means to be human, to be human beings before we are human doings. And I think our culture needs this reimagination, this robust vision of humanity once again. Your rest is a life-giving word that tells a better story of who God is and of who we are as human beings. And then thirdly, your rest lets others know they can rest too. Your rest tells others they can rest too. Because listen, if how you practice Sabbathing or not impacts those around you big time. How you take a rest, how you stop or not impacts those around you in really significant ways. And listen, I think it's easier to keep working, especially when you love what you do, right? It's like, oh, well, you know what? I'll just go in for a couple more hours this day because it'll relieve a little anxiety, or this deadline got a little bit too far, so you know what? I'm just going to put in a little bit. And especially if an overtime structure 
That extra cash flow in your pocket's not too bad either. There's a lot of different incentives to not lean into some healthy rhythms, whether psychological or financial or social. There's a lot of reasons. And we so easily slide back into slavery, which is why it's really important that God's design for rest isn't just his design, it isn't just an invitation, but it's a command. It's one of the only Ten Commandments that we, even as Christians, sometimes go, ah, that's not that important. Isn't that fascinating? You go to Exodus 20. It's the one command where like, you know, I know it's anchored in creation in Exodus 20, but I don't think that matters about it. That was just an Israel thing. That's not a church thing. Where do we get that from? And we often have such unhealthy rhythms that destroy the people around us, and we do so in the name of Jesus, which God forbid help us. You know, Eugene Peterson was so brilliant. He was a thoughtful theologian, writer, and pastor of the 20th century, late 20th century, and he writes this, Perhaps that is why the Sabbath is commanded, not suggested. For nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious, accelerating, self-perpetuating cycle of faithless and graceless busyness. That burns a little too deep there. Um, So why a command? Partly for ourselves. We'll never fully be present with people if we never hit the pause button. We'll never fully know ourselves if we never hit the pause button. Partly for us. But listen, if you don't rest... No one around you will. No one around you will. I, I know uh, th- there's a friend of mine, um, and this isn't a way of talking about myself, to be clear. Oh, I have a friend. Um, nobody, this is really a friend of mine. I thought about that as I was telling you right now. I was like, wait a second. Um, no, really, there's a friend of mine. He works for a pastor. <laughs> That's why I have to say it. He works for a pastor who literally doesn't take a day off every week. Every week. It's seven days a week. No holds bar. And he's like, Listen, that's his decision to some degree. But when I try to take, this is my friend who's a, who works for him. When I try to take off one day a week, I get a text, I get an email or a call that requires, in his mind, an urgent response that day. And he says, listen, I can't rest because he won't. And that's not limited to, you know, internal church work. That, that spans industries, doesn't it? And, and what's the cost It's a high cost for employers. It's a high cost for employees. It's a high cost for customers because usually people aren't very great to work with as a customer coming to an employee when they don't have rest and and for other reasons, and a high cost for constituents and broader organizational culture. There's a high cost to this. And yet we think it's worth to pay. You know, what's interesting if you go to the command in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, two quick things that I just think are fascinating about this. One, it's the longest command in the Ten Commandments. It takes up the most real estate out of the Ten Commandments. It's the most ink spilled is that one on Sabbath taking. Secondly, its primary focus, when you look at just words, its primary focus is on the vulnerable. That's the primary focus. Sure, there's like, hey, work six days, but I want you to keep the Sabbath holy. Make it different. Make it other than the the other six days. Make it other. I want you to rest. 
Because that's what I did at the very beginning when I was creating the world. I did this as a model for you. That's one small part. The rest of it is, now don't make your children work. Don't make your slaves work. Don't make the foreigner who's in your midst work. Don't make your animals work. This is supposed to have social and communal ramifications so there's not like this overbearing work culture that enslaves certain subgroups of the population. It's meant to have radical implications on broader communal care. When you don't rest, the people around you won't rest. We're not isolated little islands that the decisions we make for me because I want to make my decision for me only impact me. They always impact people around us, always. We were designed for work and rest. And if you don't stop, the most vulnerable in your life will get hurt the most, the most. But when you rest well, it isn't laziness. I know sometimes we can feel that way because of our workism culture. It's like, well, if I take a break, am I just being lazy? No. When you rest well, it's like rejuvenation for those other six days of the week. It's, it's like life in your bones where you can finally, with a really major vibrancy, tell this story, this life-giving word to a restless world. So who in the world is actually doing this right? <laughs> right? I don't know about you, but I was like, man, who's actually doing this right? And uh, I interestingly discovered that there is one organization um, who's doing this pretty well, and they've been doing it pretty well for a long time, and they are poised to be the third largest fast food industry in the nation. I already am hearing it. It's like some of you, you know, I, I'm talking about Chick-fil-A, Right? Some of you have been gravely disappointed when you wanted a Chick-fil-A sandwich on Sunday. <laughs> After church, you're like, I got the word, now I need my Jesus chicken, right? No, like, <clears throat> dipped in pickle juice. Uh, by the way, that's part of the secret. Um, if you don't like pickles, I'm sorry. Um, but they've been doing this since 1946. Truett Cathy, when he started the, the, this particular restaurant, saw the insane level of work that's often engaged in the food industry. And he said, not us. And he did something radical. He's like, we're just not going to be open on Sundays so that employees, employers do not feel like they're letting the company down because they take a day off. Don't feel pressured to live into unhealthy rhythms of work and rest. He said, no, 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 no. And I know people have different perspectives on how Chick-fil-A has engaged social issues. But listen, they're one of the most hospitable organizations. Like you go in there and you ask anybody anything, what's their response? My pleasure. I don't know any other place that's gotten that for me. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. And the food is delicious. And then they've set this structure from the very beginning that six days they're going to work. One day they're going to free everybody so they don't have any sort of psychological or social pressures from anybody in management or anybody who's trying to work their way up and so escalate themselves in the hierarchy. No, that's cut off. And they're sticklers about this. Do you remember the Super Bowl back in February? They actually had a storefront in the stadium, in the Super Bowl, and they didn't open up for the Super Bowl. And people are like, this is, a, this is stupid. They have a, an amazing missed opportunity. Think about all the jobs they could create. Well, what kind of jobs are they creating if they create unhealthy work structures? Are those the kind of jobs you want to apply for? I don't. 
No one does. That's, that's not human flourishing, right? Actually, what they said, well, this is a great opportunity. In a workism world where we're drowned by greed, drowned by greed, drowned it, uh-huh. drowned by greed, and just overzealous for taking on the next mountain, we're going to send a message that we're also created for rest. And they use that platform to tell a controversial story about the rhythms of their week. And yet, simultaneously, they're not legalistic about it either. You know they do open on Sundays sometimes? During national catastrophes. Here's two examples. They open up to give out free food. Here's two among others. They opened up for the Orlando Club shooting in 2016. They opened up for Hurricane Florence in 2018. They showed up on the scene with free food to help out first responders and victims. And they're still poised to be the third largest fast food restaurant in the nation. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. Isn't that the kind of story you want your organization to have? So how do we do this, right? Like, how, how can we lean into God's design? How, let's get practical a little bit. And, and before we do that, I, I do want to say there, listen, I know there are certain things we can't control. Not everybody in this room is a Truett Kathy who started their own business and has the ownership to create the systems and impact the structures. Some of us are flipping the chicken sandwiches, right? rather than creating the organizational structure. But listen, every single person in this room has a level of power. You are not completely powerless. And that should be empowering to know that there is aspects of your life that you do have control over. And that's what I want to speak to today. And so in light of that, I want to get back to the basics of Sabbath. Get back to the basics of Sabbath. In other words, I want to give the ABCDs of rest as God designed it within a Sabbath structure, okay? So let's start off with A. First, pick a day, a day, any day. Really, it doesn't matter. One day out of seven days. Now, you could hold to the more Jewish structure of a day, and you could go from evening to evening. You could start with the night before and go to the next night. You could take a more Western approach and go from 12 a.m. to 11.59, you know? It doesn't matter, but pick a day. For me, it's Fridays, and I've got a lot of reasons for why that is. But for me, it's Fridays. But the point isn't which day. The point is pick a day. And Paul makes that explicitly clear in Romans in light of what God has done in Jesus. But pick a day. You're a creature before you're a Christian. You need a day of rest, okay? Don't forget that. Secondly, or B, be still. When that day starts off, here's a really good discipline. When that day starts off, just begin by recognizing that God has you. Maybe that's a prayer while you're still in bed, before your feet even slide out. Maybe it's reading a psalm. I had someone suggest to me that maybe if you're, you're the kind of person where you're like, I'm thinking about all this stuff, or it's a season in life, I'm thinking about all the things I need to get done, and I just can't get them out of my head. Get a piece of paper, open a journal, write them all down. Everything that comes to your mind, close the journal, fold the piece of paper, and say, God, it's in your hands for today. I'll pick that up tomorrow. He's been holding the world since he created. He he can do it one day out out of the week. But whatever it is, be still and know that he's God, that he has you rest in his hands, that he has your world, that he has the world. 
and rest in his sovereign control one day a week. Listen, if you don't do that, you're never going to be able to do C and D, okay? C, cease from work. And what I mean specifically is cease from doing something that, pr- that is productive in your everyday line of work. So, you know, if you're a student, don't do homework that day. If you're a lawyer, don't open a case file. Don't answer an email. If you're an architect, don't work on your drawings. If you're a stay-at-home parent, leave the dishes in the sink. And here's the deal. If you have a spouse, this can be a really great collaborative process. So Allie and I, as we process this, sometimes I end up doing the things that she would normally do on the day. I'm not always great at it, but I'm getting better. You know, uh, do the things that she would normally do on that day. So at least there's a change. There's a difference in the day. What is her every day doesn't feel the same on that one day of the week. If you're single, bring together a group of friends. Think creatively on how you can make this day different. The key thing is this is a holy day. It's something that's different than the other six days. Be intentional. Because if you're not intentional, it's going to feel like every other day. And you're going to miss out on some great benefits of God's good design. So pick a day, be still, and know that he is God. Cease from work. And if you don't stop doing something, you can't start doing something. This is just an, I know it sounds obvious, but sometimes we can think, oh, I just keep adding stuff into my life. You got to stop doing certain things in order to start doing other things. And that's where you get to D, delight in him and his world. If you haven't ceased from work, you're not going to be able to do some of these other things you don't normally get to do, like go for a walk. And I don't mean just go for a walk. I mean go for a walk and look for his attributes in creation. What we read about in Psalm 19 or Romans 1, that his attributes are brilliantly on display in the world around us. When you're reading or get lost in a good novel, look for echoes of his redemptive story. Maybe that's a time where you read longer swaths of scripture. You spend more immersive time and prayer, whatever it is, be looking for him in it. It's not a place to distance ourselves from God, but to find some deeper intimacy and some unique avenues with God. If your Sabbath lands on, on Sunday, go to church. <laughs> like be nourished from the Lord's Supper and the people around you and God's word. That's an enriching and should be a rest-filling moment. You know, I love the way Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, which if you've never read is just a great book. He says, Sabbath is an island of get-to and a sea of have-to. It should be a moment where you say, oh, I get, to, I get to do this. How are you structuring that? You're a creature before you're a Christian, and becoming a Christian should not somehow make us sub-creature. So let's get back to the basics of the Sabbath. Pick a day, be still and know that he is God. Cease from work, delight in him and his world. Because listen, it's in those moments you not only, does your life not only speak a life-giving word to a restless world, but it's also so dynamic. In those moments of stillness, in those moments of silence, in those moments of delight, you have the opportunity in a way that you can't anywhere else to hear the life-giving word of the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, to you personally. And you need those moments each week. 
in those moments, each week where you kind of hit pause to the hurry of everyday life and you rest and you be still, in those moments you can meditate and you can remember that the same God who made the world his temple came in human form in John chapter 1 and tabernacled or templed among us in the person of Jesus. The same God who said over all of creation, I finished my work when he was on the cross, when he came in the flesh, said it is finished over all of redemption. And he did all of that that we might rest with him even now, looking forward to an even greater rest to come in eternity and that we might know rest to the fullest. So let's get back to the basics of Sabbath. Rest isn't going to just naturally happen. It needs to be created, received, ordered, and nurtured. And in many ways, we're kind of like that dog treading water, and we just need Jesus to come pick us up and take us out of the floodwaters. And sure, your legs are going to feel like they're kicking in the air some days. But let his nail-pierced hairs, nail-pierced hands be wrapped around you, calm your heart, and then calm your body, and so teach you to rest the way he's always designed you to rest, the way he longs for you to rest, in a way that shapes you as a person and shapes your calendar. This is his desire for your good. Will you receive it? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. I'm so grateful that you're a God from the very beginning that designed us to both work and rest, to know the rhythms of your design and to trust you. And as much as we long for rest, it takes a lot of faith. So may we trust you are who you say you are. May we trust you've made us to be creatures of delight. And may we, God, have the strength to rest by the power of your spirit and so enable those around us to rest even more. May we rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf that makes all this possible. Holy Spirit, guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.